Welcome to the BCMA podcast webinar series. This podcast is converted webinar audio. Ward, great webinar is recording. I'm going to hit broadcast. Let's get started. That's wonderful. That's what we want to see. Beautiful. And there we go, folks are joining us. That's fantastic. Susan, I'm just going to mute you for my introductions. Um, and we're just going to get started in one sec. Let me bring up my script. Fantastic. All righty. Why don't we get this show on the road? Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the British Columbia Museums Association webinar. My name is Lorenda Kelbert, and I will be your host today. Today's topic is getting to know dementia and becoming dementia friendly. Now, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that as an organization of provincial scope, the BCMA recognizes that its members, today's presenters, and attendees occupy the lands and territories of BC's Indigenous people. We ask all of you to reflect on the places where you reside and work to respect the diversity of cultures and experiences that form its richness. I'm joining you today from the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen people, uh, which are the Songhees and Esquimalt nations. Um, now, we are joined today by two lovely uh, speakers that we're so excited to have. Um, today's session is presented by Sana Aziz, which is the Provincial Coordinator of Dementia-Friendly Communities, and Susan Prosser, which is the Program Coordinator of Education. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We have a little bit of housekeeping before I pass it on to you. Um, for those who don't know, my name is Lorena Kelbert. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the Programs Coordinator with the BC Museums Association. I have my camera off today, as I usually do, um, but I do have a photo of myself here and I'm just going to do a visual description. I have long blonde hair, straight and tossed over my shoulders. I have fair pale skin and blue eyes. I'm smiling uh, at you with my mouth open so you can see all of my teeth. I have a uh, burgundy corduroy shirt jacket and underneath that I'm wearing a sweater that is brown, beige, purple and fuchsia. The slides that we're using today are white and blue with gray text. There's text on the slides that is just summarizing a little bit of the information I am saying to you verbally. If you are having any technical difficulties today, please do email our team. You can reach Vanessa at operations at museum.bc.ca. I can't always look at my email um, during these webinars. Uh, so if you do send me an email, I might not be able to get to it immediately. Uh, you can also reach me at programs at museum.bc.ca. Now, if you're unfamiliar to Zoom or returning to Zoom after a while, um, there are two things to cover. First, if you'd like to pose a question, uh, we ask that you do so in the chat. You can't find the chat, but you find the Q&A button, you can also pose it there. Um, the chat and Q&A button are in your taskbar, and those taskbars might be hidden from you. So just hover your mouse at the top or bottom of your screen, and that taskbar should emerge. That taskbar is also where you will find the closed captioning button as we do have closed captioning enabled today. So you just wanna click on the live transcript button and that will turn the subtitles on or if you have the subtitles on currently and you would like to turn them off, that is also where you will find that button. Now we have 90 minutes set aside for this session today, but we may wrap up a little bit earlier, but I just wanted to note that we do have a nice long amount of time uh, left for questions and discussions at the end of the session today. Uh, at this point in time, I'm going to pass um, the screen on to Sana and stop sharing my screen, and you can take it away. 
Thank you, Lorenda. Uh, just bear with me while I get set up and share my screen. So just give me a moment and Susan will be my eyes and ears here to let me know if it's uh, looking okay. Susan, are you able to see that? And it's almost there, Santa. And we're ready to roll. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, I'm just organizing my screen so I can be present and have my notes with me. So just bear with me, everyone. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, hello and welcome to the Alzheimer's Society session called Getting to Know Dementia and Becoming Dementia Friendly. A couple of housekeeping items. We have about an hour and a half together today, as Lorenda said. We will try to cover as much material as possible in that time and also have some time for Q&A. Um, feel free to type in your questions in the chat box as we go along. Um, we will make a brief stop to midway to see what kind of questions are coming in and if we're able to answer them at the time, we will. But if not, we will leave it for the end. Um, we want this to be an interactive and engaging session where we all learn from each other's expertise and experiences. So I hope you will find this meaningful. Why are we here today, you wonder? As the population ages, we will all be affected by dementia. As friends and family members, neighbors, and people in the workforce, Today's session is a foundational conversation about dementia with some practical tips and strategies that could be used in your workplace. We really want to take this opportunity to thank Lorenda and her beautiful team at the BC Museums Association for inviting us to speak today. Cultural institutions like yours, such as the museums, recreation centers, libraries, have an important role to play in dementia awareness and education. They can also serve as safe spaces and can run in a variety of activities that are dementia inclusive and dementia friendly. We all really can play a role in making our community more inclusive and accessible for people living with dementia and for everyone. Um, so thank you for having us today. And uh, I hope uh, that we can spend the next 90 minutes getting to know each other and learning a bit together. So we'll start off with some introductions. My name is Sana Aziz, and I am the Provincial Coordinator for Dementia-Friendly Communities with the Alzheimer's Society of BC. In my role, I mostly work closely with municipalities, community organizations, and businesses to form strategic partnerships and support and educate them in working towards becoming more dementia-inclusive and dementia-friendly. Susan, over to you if you'd like to introduce yourself. Thanks, Dana. I'm Susan, and I am new to the advocacy and education team. I am their program coordinator now, and I'm learning. I'm learning with Santa and dementia-friendly communities, and eventually I'll be working in healthcare education. Thank you, Susan. It's so lovely to have you here uh, and co-present with you today. Um, a little bit about the Alzheimer's Society of BC. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization whose vision is a world without Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. That world really begins with a more dementia-friendly society, where people affected by dementia are acknowledged, supported, and included. We are the only province-wide nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting people living with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, their family and friends, and healthcare providers. 
I want to really put a small disclaimer here to say that we bring a non-medical aspect to the disease. As such, we will be using a more person-centered approach when we talk about this condition and about the ways that people in the community can be supported. So I'll quickly go over um, how we have structured our time today. Um, as indicated by the title of this presentation, this is sort of a Dementia 101. It is a general presentation that covers what is dementia, how to recognize if someone might have dementia, how to communicate in an effective, appropriate way, and where to go for more help. I'd also like to point out that some participants may also be caregivers for people living with dementia and may have questions that require more background than what we'll be covering today. If this is the case for you, I would encourage you to contact your local society or our dementia helpline, which will share information about um, sometime after the presentation. One of today's main objectives is to help you, leaders in the museum environment, develop the skills, or for some of you, it might be a refresher, needed to better understand and serve a person living with dementia who may be sometimes disoriented or in need of additional assistance. Keeping that in mind, we will cover the following outline. So we'll talk a little bit about dementia-friendly communities. We'll talk about dementia, um, some signs and symptoms as the disease progresses. We'll include a little bit of conversation about the myths and stigma associated with the disease. Um, want to share with you a little bit more signs about how you may be able to recognize somebody living with dementia, how you, are, how you could communicate in an effective and appropriate way, should you be in, uh, in, in conversation with somebody who may be uh, potentially living with some form of dementia. Um, we'll also spend some time talking about what dementia-friendly community is, what a built environment looks like, a good uh, physical environment looks like, and in the end, we'll conclude with sharing some dementia-friendly activity suggestions, as well as um, talk about some resources available. And we've kept lots of time to for Q&A, so hopefully that can be a time we can engage a bit more in detail with things that we may not have covered in our presentation. So. Let me start off by giving you some national statistics on dementia. Over 500,000 people are living with dementia in Canada. This number is expected to double by 2030. 76,000 Canadians are diagnosed with dementia every year. And out of that, 65% of those diagnosed with dementia are over the age of 65 and are women. In Canada, given the high prevalence of dementia rates and in the anticipation of the rates doubling, a National Strategy for Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias Act was passed in 2017, requiring the Federal Minister of Health to spearhead the creation of a National Dementia Strategy. As part of the work to make the National Strategy a reality, the Public Health Agency of Canada provided funding to organizations doing work to support and improve the lives of people living with dementia and their caregivers. One of the projects out of this funding is called the Dementia Friendly Canada Project, which is a partnership between Alzheimer's societies across the country intended to grow dementia friendly communities by creating a truly nationwide impact. One of the goals of the Dementia Friendly Canada project is to train Canada's workforce to be more dementia friendly. 
And I wanted to set this in this, this context here to say how important this conversation is that we're having today. And it has really been recognized nationally as well. And before we dive into um, the discussion today, I think it's important to really set the stage and take a moment to further define what we mean when we say a dementia-friendly community. So let's take a moment to watch what it means to be a dementia-friendly community through the eyes of a person living with this disease. Did you know that more than 500,000 Canadians, like me, live with dementia? Or that one in five Canadians care for someone who lives with dementia? Like me, many people living with dementia still live in our communities after we are diagnosed. It isn't always easy, though. Often, we feel left out and worried about how we'll be treated by others. Sometimes people just don't understand what dementia is and how it affects the brain or know what to do if we forget something or get confused. So they seem frustrated or dismissive and sometimes the places we'd like to go are just more difficult to get around. I once got lost trying to find the washrooms in a restaurant because of the loud music, poor lighting and confusing signs. But it doesn't have to be like this. Everyone in the community can play a part in helping people living with dementia feel welcome and in creating accessible and inclusive spaces for everybody to enjoy. When our communities are dementia-friendly, people living with dementia feel less worried about how we will be treated and more confident about going out. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to live with dementia in your community or workplace? Is your community supportive, inclusive, and accessible for people living with dementia? Is it dementia-friendly in ways that let people stay engaged in community life? Would you recognize the signs that someone may be living with dementia and be able to offer the right type of support? Would you be comfortable talking to someone if you knew they were living with dementia? Would you know how to respond if someone seemed confused or had trouble expressing themselves? Are the businesses, organizations, and public spaces in your community designed so people can use them independently without getting disoriented, lost, or experiencing stigma because they are living with dementia? People living with dementia shouldn't have to work harder than everyone else to stay a part of the community. Wouldn't it be great if the neighborhoods and communities that we all share were dementia-friendly? together with the Alzheimer's Society and community members like you. Let's keep challenging the stereotypes and building a dementia-friendly Canada where everyone feels welcomed and supported. Take the first step and visit alzheimer.ca slash dementia-friendly Canada to learn more about dementia-friendly Canada. You'll find lots of information, education and resources to help you and your organization become more dementia-friendly members of your community.
any initial thoughts in the video, feel free to use the chat function to tell us what you thought of the video and what were your some of your maybe aha moments that came out of that. I hope that this video was, has provided you with a nice overview as to what a dementia-friendly community really is and how we all really have a role to play in creating supportive and inclusive spaces for people with dementia and their care partners. There are an estimated 70,000 people living with dementia in BC, and approximately 60% of those people living with dementia live in the community. The Society's vision of a dementia-friendly community and the initiative is to create a British Columbia that is supportive of people living with dementia by bolstering the efforts of local communities and organizations and service providers. A dementia-friendly community, like the video suggested, is supportive, inclusive, and accessible for people living with dementia and their care partners. So potentially a dementia-friendly community focuses on stigma reduction and the inclusion of people living with dementia. This allows people living with dementia to feel supported by individuals, businesses, and local governments, and allows these individuals to participate in their communities to the fullest extent possible. possible. Dementia-friendly communities are defined both by their social characteristics. So for example, community members are dementia-educated. They're able to recognize and communicate effectively with persons living with dementia as well as by their physical characteristics. So, you know, for example, clear and legible signages placed at eye level, well-kept streets, easy to use street furniture are some examples of how the physical environment or the built environment can be more dementia inclusive. Wanted to highlight how important it is and how wonderful it is that you have chosen to participate in today's training and recognize the need for this conversation and really taking a step towards becoming dementia friendly. Until a cure is found, the society's vision for a world without dementia must begin with a dementia-friendly society. And we know that we cannot do this alone. It will take a dramatic shift in our culture to support people living with dementia, their care partners and families. It will really take a movement. And by joining this movement, you are helping to create a world where people with dementia feel supported and included. How do we realize this vision that we wanna create? by building a community of care, a community that is engaged in moving away from fear and denial of the disease, dedicated to creating a foundation of understanding and awareness. So this idea of community of care informs our approach at the society and it really hinges on centering people living with dementia, their care partners and their family members. They are really the innermost circle that you see on this diagram. And this diagram is a really beautiful way of representing our approach here at the society when we talk about this, um, talk about this initiative. The innermost circle comprises of people that are affected by dementia. We support them with the progression of disease and really amplify their voices throughout the activities that we undertake. The middle or the brown circle represents the community of care that I was talking about. People like you and I who understand and are committed to fostering a dementia-friendly province. Now the yellow circle represents the general public, the people who don't really know much about dementia and go about their days, never really thinking about what it means to be affected by it. Our goal here is to grow the middle circle, the brown circle, and really shrink the yellow outer circle, bringing more and more people into this movement. And while that's our goal, 
we recognize how important it is for organizations like yourselves to be a part of this movement. Like I said, we can all play a role in the societal impact or in reducing the societal impact of stigma through care and inclusion, as well as building dementia-friendly organizations. This can be done by building awareness, building perception and changing behavior. It is really the community that creates a dementia-friendly society, not necessarily just the organize, not just the Alzheimer's Society of BC or us, but it is something we all do together. The museums, the libraries, the recreation centers, the places people visit regularly to maintain their quality of life. Dementia-friendly communities is about adapting practices and principles so that people living with dementia and their care partners continue to find meaning in their environment and in their interactions. It is based on pillars of, pillars of accessibility, inclusivity, understanding, and dignity. As we continue this discussion, I encourage you to keep in mind that we're not talking about transformational or daunting changes to be more dementia-friendly. Perhaps some of you are already doing some of these steps or have already taken these steps to become more inclusive. These really are simple with your organizational values and ethics and are, are possible to incorporate easily in your day-to-day -day activities. A lot of times, and I want to step back for a second and really take a minute to talk about the importance of this particular topic, dementia and stigma. A lot of times, the stigma associated with dementia is based on the society's stereotypes of the disease. As a result, they may choose to believe what may or may not be true about the disease. Stigma is one of the biggest barriers for people living with dementia to live fully with dignity and respect. By definition, stigma is any negative attitude or discriminatory behavior against people living with dementia. And the unfortunate reality is that any person living with dementia may encounter stigma at any given time. Even though half a million Canadians live with dementia, many feel excluded, ignored, and treated differently for something beyond their control. I wanna share with you findings of a study that was conducted with 1,500 Canadians regarding attitudes towards dementia. 46% of respondents felt that they would be embarrassed if they had dementia, while 61% of those surveyed said they would face discrimination of some kind. One in four Canadians believed their family and friends would avoid them if they were diagnosed with dementia. And only 5% of Canadians would learn more about dementia if a family member, friend, or co-worker co were diagnosed. 56% of Canadians are concerned about Alzheimer's disease. Of greatest concern is the fear of being a burden to others, losing independence, and the ability to recognize family and friends. And sadly, only 39% of respondents felt that they would offer support family or friends who were open about their diagnosis. Really the goal of sharing this is to say that there is a lot that our society can do to remove the stigma and the barriers that people face when they, when they are living with this disease. And I'm now going to pass on the virtual mic to Susan who will really walk us through some, um, some initial introductory information about what dementia is and some of the signs and symptoms. Over to you, Susan, and let me know when you'd like me to move along the slides. Thanks, Sarah, you can go to the next slide. And I'd just like to reiterate 
that we are really comfortable with your questions. There's usually a lot of questions about dementia as we get into the material, so feel free to use that chat box. So dementia is actually an umbrella term, and it's an umbrella term that describes any disease that causes physical changes in the brain. So Alzheimer's disease is one type of dementia. So you can also consider the word dementia much like the word cancer. There are many different types of cancer. They each affect the body in a different way, but they're all considered cancer. So sometimes people um, will have a specific uh, type of dementia that's called mixed dementia. And mixed dementia is where you have actually two or more different processes going on in the brain. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. Uh, and the other ones you see there, Lewy body, vascular, frontal temporal, or other are also options. And dementia causes physical changes to the brain. And these changes cause changes in thinking, behavior, personality, and judgment. So it's not a normal part of aging. This is actually a disease process brain and changes the shape and size of the brain. The different dementias you see here will, call, will cause different changes. That means that my dementia would be different from yours or somebody else's. It's a unique process for each person. We often say if you know one person with dementia, that means you know one person with dementia. Thanks, Santa. Great. We're going to look at the causes of dementia now. So this is a sequential way of demonstrating how the various diseases are related to dementia. So it's progressive degenerative diseases, which cause destructive proteins and vascular changes in and around the brain cells. So if you look at the far left, you'll see the, the same list we saw on the previous slide with Alzheimer's, vascular, mixed, Lewy body, frontal, temporal, and others. Alzheimer's disease is specifically caused by abnormal accumulations of proteins in the brain. Most of you may have heard the words plaques and tangles to describe beta amyloid plaques and tau tangles that occur throughout the brain specifically with Alzheimer's. The first thing with Alzheimer's is usually short-term memory loss. That's often the first symptom people notice. And over time, the brain continues to change. Typically, it's a slow progression with Alzheimer's. So as we proceed today through our slides, we're actually going to refer quite a bit to Alzheimer's disease. Lewy body dementia is very different. It's still protein deposits in the brain. We still see changes in cognitive function, but we also see a lot of physical changes with Lewy body. There's dementia with Lewy bodies, with changes in cognitive thinking, and then within one year lead to physical changes, visual disturbances, hallucinations, and delusions. And then there's Parkinson's disease dementia, which is also linked to Lewy body. And in that dementia, we see cognitive symptoms first. And then after more than a year, we start to see changes. Uh, sorry, in Parkinson's, we see cognitive symptoms more than a year after the physical changes. So Parkinson's starts with the physical 
and then the cognitive follows. In frontal temporal dementia, uh, we see a dementia that occurs in younger people, usually before the age of age 60. So we call this young onset dementia. The frontal lobe of our brain controls impulses and behavior. So the symptoms we see with frontal temporal dementia are often inappropriate social behavior, saying things that don't fit the situation that would be unexpected or uncomfortable. And then temporal lobes of the brain will actually see changes in language processing. So difficulty speaking, difficulty finding the right word, and also difficulty understanding words as language comes in. Then we can look at mixed dementia. Mixed dementia, the most common, is Alzheimer's and vascular dementia combined. This means that more than one process is going on in the brain. And for vascular dementia, it's not caused by disease, but rather by a blockage or a rupture of vessels in the brain, like a stroke or several small strokes called TIAs. So there's concerns around blood flow, oxygen, and nourishment of brain cells with vascular dementia. It's usually sudden. It's after a cardiovascular event. And the, the symptoms vary with vascular dementia because it can occur in so many different places in the brain. It's also a very variable type of dementia, meaning that we're not, it's, we don't know what to expect. It's less predictable. And then there's also quite rare forms of dementia, such as Creutzfeldt-Jacob, HIV-related dementia, Huntington's disease dementia, and more. So I just wanted to point out that we keep learning more and more about dementia. And recently, uh, we, are, we learned about a new kind of dementia out of the University of Kentucky Research. And this is called LATE. LATE dementia stands for limbic predominant age-related TDP-43 encephalopathy, which is extremely difficult to say. And late symptoms mimic Alzheimer's disease, but are caused by a different buildup of proteins in the brain. And it's a little scary because it moves very rapidly, whereas Alzheimer's disease tends to take time, late moves quick. All of these symptoms lead, all of these diseases lead to symptoms of dementia that you see on the far right. So we will see memory loss, confusion, impaired judgment, changes in communication, changes in behavior, and others. Thank you, Santa. Here, here is a list of some possible symptoms that a person living with dementia may experience as the disease progresses. So in the early stages, these symptoms are barely noticeable very mild changes. There could be some initial forgetfulness, uh, shifting in the mood from time to time, doesn't quite seem like themselves, withdrawal from social activities, maybe a mild coordination problems, bumping into things, perhaps a change in walking. But as the disease progresses into the middle stage, we start to see bigger changes that affect daily living. 
So the initial forgetfulness and easy shifting of mood from time to time now can turn into difficulty recognizing familiar things such as walking into the kitchen and not remembering quite how to start the coffee maker. It could result in bigger personality changes that other people are starting to notice. And the person may find it more difficult to concentrate and focus. So conversations get tough. Uh, completing activities that they used to do are more difficult. And they'll probably need assistance with daily tasks. Things that used to be easy can become quite challenging. As we move to the late stage, the entire brain is now impacted by dementia and the abilities are severely impacted. So a person will lose the ability to remember or process information. They may completely withdraw from engagement with others. Usually at the late stage, a person will be living in a care home, receiving daily support by a team of professionals to make it through their day. Communication is remarkably impacted in the late stage. So you will maybe see nonverbal communication, a complete lack of words. Um, you may see more changes like sleeping longer, difficulty eating, difficulty swallowing, being unable to perform self-care. The main message I'd like to share about this stages of dementia slide is that it does start very small and very mild. And over time, it grows bigger and bigger into the severe stages. Thank you, Santa. So dementia, there's so many myths out there and so many misunderstandings. And we're going to do a little bit of myth busting right now. So. Dementia is not strictly a genetic disorder. There is one type of dementia, it's called young onset dementia, young onset Alzheimer's, that you may have seen in the movie Still Alice, or you may have read in the book Still Alice. So this is a very unique form of Alzheimer's disease. If you have the gene for young onset, you will get Alzheimer's disease young onset. And if one of your parents has the gene, you will have a 50% chance of getting it yourself. The second myth is dementia is a natural part of aging. This is not a natural part of aging. Yes, memory changes are um, a natural part of aging. Our memory does change as we get older. Sometimes we're a little slower in the things that we recall, might need a little bit more time, but you've got to remember we have a whole lifetime of memories and we, we need more time to recall them. And as we age to separate, uh, separate out those memories and decide what's important. Preventable or curable. So dementia is not preventable. We can, however, do something called risk reduction. There's no guarantee, however, no matter what healthy lifestyle we have, it's just that we do the best that we can do. So far, the most robust evidence of risk reduction is attributable to physical exercise. What's good for your heart and your body is good for your brain. Dementia does not mean the person will no longer have a meaningful life. Many people with lived experiences continue to live meaningful lives and continue to do things that give them pleasure and make them happy. 
So creating meaningful and dementia-friendly communities can enable these people to live to their fullest for as long as possible. And it doesn't mean that the person cannot understand what's going on around them. They can. They may need more time. They may need a different approach. But they're still there, and they still understand. We hear a lot in the news about the bad news stories. And we find quite often people believe that dementia means a person will become violent or aggressive. Dementia does not mean that a person will become violent or aggressive. It's important to remember that surprising or unexpected behavior can be the result of a person living with dementia, either having a very different reality or being frustrated or being misunderstood or being put in circumstances that are very difficult and challenging for them. Some people may behave in a violent or aggressive manner. However, it's extremely rare. In most situations, the way we interact with the person, the way we communicate, the way we support them can have a significant impact on their behavior. And so that leads us very nicely to the next section of our presentation today. Thanks, Santa. We'll go to the next slide. Well, we'll just take a good look at all the signs of dementia. So the first sign you see is problems with memory. And most of you will have heard of this symptom and be familiar with it. Talk about problems with memory. We're really focusing in on short-term memory. That is the part of the memory that shows up first as a problem area. So what does that look like? Well, it could be a participant returning several times to a specific section of the exhibit in your museum and forgetting they were just there. They may share the same comments several times. They may repeat stories or they may ask the same question. So short term memory can be seconds. It can be minutes or hours. So what occurred half an hour ago may not be stored in that short term memory bank. For example, a person moving through your museum may misplace their cane or their purse or their coat. And because of changes in short-term memory, they may not be able to retrace their steps back to find that lost item. They may not be able to recall which section of the museum they have already visited. And it's quite possible they'll look around that museum and it will all look new and all look unfamiliar because of changes in short-term memory. Difficulty with familiar tasks is also very common with dementia, especially tasks that require sequencing and multitasking. Sometimes we forget how often we multitask. So think about this. We're walking through the museum, we're talking as we're walking, and we're also looking around and observing the exhibits around us. That is three brain functions occurring simultaneously. That is multitasking. And that's very, very hard for a brain when it has dementia. Problems with language and finding the right words. We all have trouble finding the right words sometimes, but a person with dementia may forget simple words. They may start substituting words. Their sentences may be a little bit garbled and that's all due to changes in the brain. Abstract thinking is really high level brain function. So a person living with dementia may have difficulty with tasks that require this kind of thinking, such as making sense of symbols and images or understanding metaphors. 
such as a place to hang your hat. Well, I'm not wearing a hat, so I don't need a place to hang my hat. It's a literal translation. That abstract part is missing. Signage can be particularly challenging and confusing when the symbols are unclear. Conversations can be tough to follow. So from time to time, people may become distracted and lose their place in a conversation, and that's normal. But for people living with dementia, they may actually be a step behind in the conversation because it's just going too quickly and their brain can't keep up, can't process that quickly. Or they may lose words in the conversation and then reply in an inappropriate way. Judgment is affected with dementia as well. So we could see some unusual or surprising decisions. For example, your museum guests may show up to the Fort Langley Canada Day, 30 degrees Celsius celebration, wearing a winter coat, winter boots, and a hat, because that was a judgment call. And also some dementias can lead to impulsive decision-making and again, surprising behavior. Disorientation to time and place means that not quite, the brain is not quite sure where it is. We've all forgotten the day of the week. Sometimes we forget where we're going or how we got there, but just for a moment. Some living with dementia can become lost on their own street, not knowing how they got there or how to get home. So an unfamiliar space such as a museum or a park or a fair can provide really big challenges. Disorientation to time and space can also include living in the past. So a person with dementia may lose contact with the reality of today, where they are now, and they may believe they're a much younger person. And this is because their brain has traveled back into the past, into the long-term memory bank, because the long-term memory bank is strong and it is generally a more comfortable place to be. Thanks, Santa. So we're gonna talk just briefly about something called connect, don't correct. So while you may or may not see symptoms of dementia in your museum, connecting is always a good idea. If we remember that dementia is the result of brain damage, we can quickly realize that pointing out a flaw in someone's thinking or a flaw in someone's memory is not going to help that brain. It's not gonna fix it it's not going to make the connections happen. Rather, it's more likely to add stress. That's why we like connect, don't correct. So an example of a correction would be saying something like, hmm, don't you remember? We just visited that exhibit. That statement tries to correct the brain and bring it back to our reality. However, a connecting statement would be more like, Wow, I'm so glad you liked the exhibit. Let's talk about it. There's no correction in this statement. There's only an opportunity to connect further. So we're gonna open up the chat box now, just invite you about what you've learned about dementia and what questions you have about dementia and the material we've covered so far.
Thank you so much. Just a reminder, if you can't find the chat or Q&A button, you can hover your mouse at the top or bottom of the screen and it should emerge. And I will add that it is perfectly okay if you didn't have any questions at this point. Um, we can, oh, I see a red. Okay, uh, someone has asked if you mentioned dementia-friendly signage. Do you have examples of this? So great question. Stay tuned. We're going to cover that part in the latter half of our conversation, as well as we'll be happy to provide some more examples and resources to, um, to that question. So we'll make a note of that. And... Um, Definitely, we'll be able to talk a bit more about that. So this is we're just halfway through the presentation. Um, keep your questions coming. We will move along just in the interest of time. And um, if there's anything that clicks, feel free to write away, and then we will we will address it at the end of our presentation. So Susan, how do we feel about that? Should I proceed? Sounds great. Yep. Let's go, Santa. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, you know, we spent the first little while talking about what is dementia, giving you an overview about what a dementia-friendly community is, the, the whole the whole setting the stage in a way to say why this is so important. So now we're going to talk a bit more about what you can do in the work that you do in the, in the environment that you support. What are some ways to bring those practices into practical scenarios and in, 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 in the way that we work? There are so many individuals and groups uh, who can benefit from dementia-friendly museums. And we talked about that. We all need spaces to engage, uh, provide opportunities, learn, play, create, and share. And that doesn't really change with a dementia diagnosis. So as you move forward to consider dementia-friendly programs and spaces for your museum, please know that the person living with dementia needs opportunities to keep their brain active and engaged as long as possible. They need social interaction and engagement to help support brain health and consider their family members or care providers who provide daily care and support. They need a space as well to be able to bring their care partner or the person living with dementia and find a place that's safe and inclusive. So what you're doing and the, the spaces that you're part of can be really beneficial to spouses, adult children, grandchildren, and Really, it's a community at large that can benefit from being uh, more inclusive and more accessible. Some of you may already be welcoming back seniors groups, adult day programs, maybe residents who are coming in from care homes or assisted living programs. Each of these groups will include most likely mm -hmm. somebody living with dementia. So if you recall at the beginning of the presentation, we talked about numbers and we talked about 70,000 people in BC having a diagnosis of dementia. And think about it. If each of those people, persons had one care partner, one family member or one relative or a friend, think about how many people that makes up in thousands people that need dementia friendly spaces and places. So before, you know, let's start off by talking about, you know, what are some ways that you can help? Absolutely. But even before that, trying to understand why it's important to change the way we communicate or alter the way we communicate with people living with dementia. And let's start off by looking at this picture that we see here. So without hearing what they're talking about, are you what is happening in this situation? Tell me in the chat. What do you think is happening in this picture? If you were to walk up to these two people who were at a restaurant, at your museum, 
could you get a sense of whether they're experiencing a positive, happy situation or a negative, difficult situation? What do you think is happening? So I'll give everybody a few seconds, just, you know, maybe uh, put their answers in the chat. Um, I'll be I'm curious to see what you think when you look at this picture. Positive body language. Thank you for getting started. Lots of answers coming in. Okay. Positive body language is leaning in towards each other at first glance, happy, pleasant interaction or discussion. Positive conversation, very positive. Excellent. Thank you for getting this conversation started. So the person on the left is clearly listening. Eye contact, friendly, a smile appears to be attempted conversation, leaning in each other. So overall, everybody's finding that this conversation seems to be happy, positive, engaged. And all of this was gathered just by looking at a picture. The smile from the person in the orange on the left, what appears to be possibly a smirk from the person on the right, the leaning in, um, all of these tell us that it's a good experience and they're probably sharing stories or laughing about something that happened or talking about many other things that are bringing them perhaps some form of joy in that moment. And this is an example of how we can communicate so much with using words. In fact, most of our communication is expressed through nonverbal. That is our body language, our gestures, our facial expressions, our tone of voice, our pitch. And this is so encouraging when it comes to communicating with people with living with dementia. The most important type of communication is really about connection. And this indicates that we can continue to connect with people even when the objective words begin to lose their meaning. Instead, the tone in which the words are said, the pitch of the voice, one's body language, these all can provide some opportunity of connection. How does dementia impact communication, you might be wondering. This image is one of the hardest images for me personally to look at, and it might be difficult for you too when you look at it. But it's important that we understand and recognize that the disease is causing changes to happen in the person's brain, which causes their symptoms. It's not intentional, the way the person behaves, the way the person is communicating, are beyond their control. It is happening because of an actual disease in the brain. And oftentimes a person with dementia looks quite healthy, maybe even normal on the outside, which can make it even more difficult for those around them to make sense of their symptoms. While there are several different diseases that cause dementia, as Susan talked about, they share many symptoms. Eventually, most lead to pronounced shrinking of the brain or atrophy. This image demonstrates what the brain of someone with advanced dementia looks like, or oh, sorry, advanced Alzheimer's disease would look like. When you look at the brain on the right, you can see there are profound changes, big gaps and holes. If you think of our brains as telecommunications network, you can really see that there are downlines in this brain. The regions of the brain that are necessary for speech and language are primarily the left side of the temporal lobe and the frontal lobe. 
when damage starts to occur in these regions of the brain, a result of the plaques, as a result of the plaques and tangles and the vascular damage that we talked about earlier, or other protein changes, the person may have difficulty with communication. So communication changes impact every person differently, and they can be significant for some people living with dementia. If someone is experiencing changes in vocabulary, they may speak in sentences with long pauses, lots of pronouns, missing words or misplaced words. Sometimes the sequence of the words will also be confusing. Your visitor may be visibly delighted to see the old photograph of a 1942 fighter jet, but use words such as that, that, bird, or maybe bus to describe it. It's also possible that the brain is having trouble comprehending incoming language. So what you're describing, perhaps your tour or your presentation may not be understood. This is called receptive aphasia. Sometimes slowing your speech can help, choosing simple words and short sentences or offering visuals along with spoken words can be helpful. If the environment is noisy with a variety of sounds, such as children laughing, a background conversation, a presentation, music, or sound effects, the brain will struggle to interpret those sounds and decide which should take priority. Therefore, all sounds are interpreted as important and equal, which makes noisy places and sound spaces overwhelming. Open-ended questions can also be challenging because they don't give a lot of information. So instead of asking a larger a large question such as, what do you remember about growing up in the war? You might start with a close-ended question such as, do you remember growing up in the war? The latter can be answered with a yes or no. A follow-up question might be, were you living in Canada during the war? Again, a yes or no answer. These simple questions help guide the brain to the topic at hand. Long-term memories, as we talked about, are usually intact and eventually you may hear some amazing stories. You may also be able to introduce some of the open-ended questions once the conversation is going and the participant has become more comfortable in the space. Choice is always good as we say, but there is such a thing as too much choice. It is easier and more relaxing for a person living with dementia to choose from one or two options rather than four or five. Having a guide or a helper during a museum visit can be empowering for a person living with dementia. The guide could begin to narrow down the options by saying something like, would you like to start with a visit to the seals or the penguins? These are some tips and strategies. And this I understand is a lot of information on one slide. And we do have handouts for this that we will be sharing with you after the presentation. But we wanted to really bring out all the communication strategies at once for you to see what could be some effective ways if you are, in fact, you know, communicating with somebody who may be struggling or maybe needing a bit more assistance. So consider these strategies as a way to communicate more effectively. Reduce distractions. Communicating is really easier if other things are not happening at the same time. So if there's too much noise, consider going into a quieter space to have the conversation. Tell the person your name and your relation to them. So if you are a tour guide in the in, you can say something like, my name is Sana and I am your guide for today and I'm here to help you navigate or enjoy your time here at the museum today. 
have one-on-one -on -one conversations. Again, that's really challenging with the work that you're doing and perhaps the number of visitors that are in your space. Keeping track of conversations in larger groups may sometimes be difficult and the brain may have to work more hard, harder than it really can. So when possible, try to have one-on-one -on -one conversations or conversations in smaller groups. Gain attention, face the person, make eye contact when the person will, will so to help them with the focus. Be aware of your tone, your body language, remain calm and speak in a relaxed tone to put them at ease. Abrupt or hurried movement, as well as a sharp tone or raised voice may cause distress. We already went over connect, don't correct. So instead of criticizing or correcting somebody for what they're commenting on, it's best to it's best to reinforce positively, encourage, and perhaps just leave the correction to another time because that in the moment is probably not what they're wanting to hear. And most most importantly, be respectful. Use the person's preferred name when addressing them if you have that information. Do not patronize or speak down to the person. Avoid using childish or elder talk. So for example, words like dear, sweetie, or any demeaning language. Sometimes they may still understand what is being said to them, even though they have lost the ability to produce the words as a response in their mind. One of the most effective things I will say is like, listen carefully, listen carefully to what the person is saying and observe both the verbal and nonverbal communication. Try not to interrupt the person, even if you think what they are saying, if you already think you know what they're saying. If the person is having difficulty finding the right words, you can offer a guess as long as they appear to want some help. Be patient. The person may need more time to process information. We talked about how the damage in the brain is happening. And as a result, parts of the brain that function would function normally are affected. So there's probably more time that's needed to process the information that's coming in. Provide reassurance. If they sense you're impatient or agitated, they may feel stressed or frustrated, and that may ruin the experience of everyone around. Show and talk. So again, use actions as well as words. So for example, if you're talking about a painting to your right, point to it as well so people can draw their attention to this. And then when you're done speaking and talking about the next artifact, point yourself to that position so that people can see while you're talking and be more attentive where they are. I'll move on the focus to a little bit on the built environment. And as I talked about, you know, when we talk about creating dementia-friendly communities, it's really important to bring light to and focus on what it means to have a space that is inclusive, accessible. So a person living with dementia's interactions with the built environment really can provide a sense of independence and dignity at a time when they're experiencing new challenges, perhaps every day. A physical environment that's really welcoming to people uh, living with dementia practices inclusion. So for example, um, there is equality of access and opportunity regardless of ability or age. Landmarks are clear, distinctive features, open spaces, or places of activity or rest. An environment that is inclusive, that is accessible. People living with dementia are able to reach use and walk around the spaces they visit. So for example, clearly marked accessible washrooms in public spaces. When people living with dementia perceive the outdoors to be safe, they can enjoy being out in their community. So that's a very important feature of a dementia-friendly built environment. 
Distinctiveness is another feature we emphasize on. So distinct features help people living with dementia understand where they are and identify where they should go. For example, clear and legible signage placed at eye level. Familiarity. People living with dementia may use familiar landmarks and other visual cues they regularly, regularly encounter as wayfinding techniques. So being mindful of that. Um, and lastly, an environment that's comfortable, calm, welcoming, informal, can all be places where people can feel comfortable and confident going in. Sometimes, and we often say that behavior in a person living with dementia could be a result of unmet needs. Often the behavior that, that you witness could be attributed to the environment as well. So some things to think about in your own physical environment um, could be, that could attribute to a person's behavior, could be, is there is a big place too big or small? So think about the space in itself and the ability to move around in. Furniture can be unsettling. So too much decor, too much furniture can sometimes be unsettling and can prevent independence if the person doesn't know how to use something. So for example, think of dimmer switches. If there are no instructions and if there's a little thing with just a switch that goes up and down, that is not enough information for a brain living with dementia to know what to do with it. Contrast can sometimes be challenging as well. So decrease contrast to discourage the use of features you don't want attention to. So for example, the door to the outside. Glare is a big one that can look like water on the floor sometimes and can be disruptive. Confusing patterns can be overwhelming and contribute to shadows, which can be perceived as, as people and things which could be frightening for somebody who is really believing that to be true. Areas or environments that are too cluttered could be, bring too much stimulation and really can distract from the communication happening. Sometimes no cues in the environment can also be challenging for wayfinding and navigating and can cause the purple person to become disoriented or lost. So let's, here are some examples of what we mean when we talk about the built environment and inclusive built environment. And here are some examples of what we're saying. Look at the images that you see on the screen, the three of them. So let's start with the first one. Um, and let's consider some of the environmental barriers we talked about. The first one being confusing patterns. So we can see from the image on the left that the floor is beautiful, but busy. For a brain struggling to prioritize messages and decide where to focus, this floor could be daunting. The image on the top right shows us the power of lighting. It is clear where to focus. However, the area around the exhibit looks quite dark. The change in lighting is dramatic. There could be areas of deep darkness and areas of shadows, which are confusing. Shadows can be interpreted as real people or real things. And finally, consider the image on the bottom left. That's an exit sign for you and I. Maybe that's pretty simple and easy to, easy to read. But remember we talked about dementia affecting abstract thinking? So well, literally, this is a sign of a person running. This sign is also situated on the ceiling and it's not at eye level. So many people may not even see the sign firstly. And if they do end up seeing it, they may see it as, as a sign that says, that speaks to fear and running away. And it may actually take away from the purpose of what it's intended to do. Take a look at this image. It's a nice balance of color, contrast, focused lighting, 
room to move and room to sit. The floor is patterned, but not in a confusing, distracting way. When we look at this image, we see a lot of light, room to move, no strong glares or reflections, and a powerful use of negative space. It's absolutely clear where to focus. You will also notice a green colored band of tile or mat along the wall. Fortunately, it's not black because if it was, it could be perceived as a whole and a person living with dementia may not feel comfortable or may refuse to go closer to it because of the fear of falling. Dark colors on flooring can really be, can be interpreted as holes or puddles and may actually create more anxiety and stress for a person who may not understand what's going on. So in light of all the things that we talked about in the built environment, here are some strategies to consider making your own physical environment more inclusive and dementia friendly. And I'm going to go back to a point I made early on right at the beginning. The goal here with us being present is not to make more work for your organization or for steps to be daunting. It's simply a way to say, Here's, here are some guidelines, here are some strategies, take what you can and make incremental changes that are most suited for your organization or for your spaces. So with that, you know, consider designating a quiet space away from the background noise, where it is easier to have a conversation. If possible, limit background noise or music at certain times of the day. Avoid cluttered spaces. So again, like I said, it can be challenging to concentrate with too much visual stimulation. Ensure lighting is adequate. Poor lighting can make the environment confusing or even scary. Signage, if possible, make sure signage for washrooms, water fountains, and other important areas is large, clear, and at eye level. Verbal directions are great, very helpful, but may, may be forgotten quickly, and people living with dementia may accidentally leave a building or areas if there are not clear signs to help them find their way. Scheduling, you may be in, a, in, in an organization, in a, in a museum that does activities that are designed maybe for people living with dementia, for other groups. If that is the case, think about what time of the day those activities are happening and consider scheduling activities which is best suited for the, for the people that you're trying to serve. So for example, some people living with dementia may experience a common term you may have heard of called sundowning, which is really a phenomenon which results in greater disorientation or confusion later in the day. In this case, a late afternoon or an e early evening activity could be avoided and maybe, maybe more challenging to work through than perhaps a morning activity. As dementia progresses, sometimes individuals often begin to need more assistance with using the bathroom or other, other services or utilities. So consider creating mixed or family washrooms or spaces where people can go in with their care partner and family members to for that additional assistance. And we've talked about communication strategies. We've talked about environmental strategies. We can try as much to create communities and spaces that are safe, inclusive, and dementia-friendly. And I want to share this quote that we, we really love here at the Society and really so much to what we're trying to say. And that's by Maya Angelou. And she says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, 
People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel, unquote. A person living with dementia, depending on the progression, may or may not recall the details of the visit to your museum. However, they may remember how they felt in the space and what a great day they had. And if they return to your museum, they will likely recall it as a happy place with warm and welcoming staff. So in other words, the emotions really become the memory. Even if your guests are visiting exhibits that, are, that facilitate sadness or grief or maybe trigger a part of their past that is difficult, that examines dark moments in their history, yet the overall experience of feeling welcomed, safe, validated, and interested will likely prevail. And that is what we see, what we mean when we say creating communities that are welcoming. And I'm sure all of you are doing a wonderful job at that already. And we look forward to talking about this a bit more in the Q&A. But for now, I'm going to pass it back to Susan, who will lead us to the last few sections of our presentation. Thanks very much, Sana. Um, before I start on activities, I just want to acknowledge we've had some great questions and comments. So we will get to those. And uh, but first, I'm going to quickly talk about dementia friendly activities. So, as you know, many people with dementia will experience losses in short term memory. And as you also know now, long term memory often remains strong and a good place to start. So I'm not saying it's necessary, it's necessary to rely solely on long term memory to connect with someone who has dementia museum visit successful but I'm saying long-term memory is a great starting point it's a, a position of strength and it can lead to other things so we did a little bit of research and we found some museums and galleries in the UK that have introduced reminiscing kits and exhibits to engage people living with dementia and uh, I think we're going to provide a link for you about that later so you can also figure out what they've done and see if it interests you Long-term memories are also often accessed through music, and there's something about music that never leaves the brain. Even with advanced dementia, music is a link to memory, and it is an incredible connection um, method. It's the songs of our lives are deeply embedded in our brain. The music will bring back those memories. It helps us remember key points in our life, and it helps us celebrate our past. And always, when you are working on activities, it is good to strike a balance between quiet, contemplative activity and then interactive activity. A person living with dementia may become fatigued with too much information, too much interaction. So a shorter program that provides a balance between interaction and then opportunities to just rest, process, and enjoy a quiet moment may work really well. So often we, we rely on our visual and verbal interactions. So if I were coming to your museum, you would be talking to me, you would be showing me things, I would be processing that and moving on. And that's how we have a conversation and we're very comfortable engaging that way. But with dementia, it's different. It's important to branch out beyond the conversation and incorporate other senses. So we can, so we look at something, 
we listen to something, we need to touch something or move something, maybe reorganize something, place it here, or to create something. It may include smell, it may include music, it may even include tasting something. More senses are required to connect with the brain. And we all move at different speeds. And people with dementia will usually appreciate a slower paced speed with some breaks. The brain is often processing with you, taking it all in, but it's needing more time. And honestly, sometimes just sitting and people watching in a public place like a museum is just as fascinating as a museum exhibit. So taking a rest, moving through an exhibit at our own pace, having opportunities to engage and interact, having opportunities to repeat things because of changes in the short-term memory can all be helpful. I wanted to share the idea of a memory box, which I'm sure most of you have heard of, but a memory box is a box of items from the past. It accesses long-term memory. It includes interaction. It involves storytelling and it provides options. So that is a great experience for a person with dementia because it's also a tactile experience. So you can do it yourself. You can involve a friend. You can go through the box with a group of people. You can pick things up out of the box, touch them, move them. You can think about them. You can look at things, hold things. They will feel different. You can share your stories about these items. And then you can go back and look at them over and over again when you want. And there's a lot of options. The perfect environment, non-competitive, multi-sensory, options for interaction, and you're bouncing, your diving board is long-term memory. I just wanted to share that example of one way to incorporate all these themes on the slide. Thank you, Santa. So making your workplace dementia friendly series, we have some great resources on our website. And also I believe these are also print copies on how to make your workplace dementia friendly for all the different professions. We don't have one specifically for museums, but we do have one for recreation professionals. Some of the content in these might be very useful for you. And we also have some great course resources. Santa, would you like to talk about these? Sorry, I was looking for my mute button. Yes, of course. So we talked about the Dementia Friendly Canada project, but I didn't really dwell into that because of our time. Um, and out of that project has been, we've created multiple courses um, that are designed specifically for certain sectors, which is which includes transportation, recreation, library, um, and retail and restaurant. And these are all online modules. They're 75 minutes in total, and they are a great way to learn more about things that we've talked about specifically relevant to the work uh, if you are in certain sectors, but they're generally good guidelines for everyone and um, with great strategies and tips. So out of those course modules also came out a few tip sheets. So we've created a few tip sheets. Uh, and if you wish to continue learning beyond what we've talked about today, or you want to incorporate ways in which you can bring some of the strategies to your workplace, these are great materials to start with. 
So we have about four tip sheets, five tip sheets actually, that may be useful. One talks about tips for dementia-friendly interactions. So you can, tips to bring into your everyday interactions at all levels of the organization. Um, tips for dementia-friendly spaces. And this is my personal favorite because it's a checklist to assess your workplace environment and perhaps use it as a way to develop an action plan for making the space more dementia-friendly. And you'll probably be surprised at the, at the response you get from the checklist because a lot of it could be stuff you're already doing. And some of it is stuff that could be easily moved or changed with that intent or with that awareness. We also have a few more um, guidelines that and checklists, and we'll be we're happy to share all of this in a follow up email. Uh, particularly like the language guidelines, which speaks to person centered language, and I think that's also a really good way uh, to incorporate some of those social characteristics in your environment. Um, and then lastly, tips for dementia friendly written materials. So I know the question came up about signage, I believe, and I don't I have to go back and read the question, but. This tip sheet really talks about ways that you can have more appropriate dementia-friendly signage. So it talks about what font to use, what spacing to have, how to, how to write out your written communication, and that includes how you would do symbols and signs as well throughout your workspace. But like I said, I'm just, you know, in the interest of time, won't go into detail, but happy to loop back to this and happy to share this over email if it will be useful. Over to you, Susan. Thanks very much, Santa. So we love to stay connected and we hope you'll stay connected with us. We have a dementia helpline and there's three phone numbers up there for you to use in the language that you wish. And the dementia helpline is open from nine in the morning till eight in the evening. Um, it's a great way to follow up with more questions um, and to actually ask more personalized questions if you wish. So please give us a call. We would love to hear from you. Uh, what's I going to say something else here, Santa? <laughs> no, I, I think nothing more. I think you, you know, but just to add as well that this is our first link dementia helpline, which is specifically to support people living with dementia and family members in the community. And it, it is across the province. So uh, this is a line that we will mostly for the most part receive calls from people living with dementia or people uh, or their care partners. Uh, and this is one way that we support through our programs and services. Again, would love to talk more about all the work that we do, um, but in the interest of time, we're gonna keep it limited. So this helpline is just a great tool for you as members in the community to know, not just for your own um, work with the museums or in your uh, professional lives, but also to remember and to probably, you know, know that this option and this service is available to anybody who you may know may be living with dementia, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a family member, or anybody you think who would be curious and would want to learn more or have specific questions. This is an anonymous uh, confidential line that anyone can call in at. That's all I wanted to add, Susan. Thank you. <laughs> so we're almost at the end of our presenta presentation today and we wanted to thank you for joining us. And I also just wanted to share very briefly just a little bit about why you are so important to us and why you're so important in our dementia-friendly initiative. In my past jobs, I work directly with people living with dementia and their caregivers. And I have been supporting these people through the pandemic. 
and I wanted to let you know how difficult it has been for these families and how isolated they are feeling and how much they need places like museums or they need spaces that are friendly and open and spaces where people understand dementia and can respond appropriately. A person with dementia's life gets smaller as time goes on. The options become more limited. There is increasing pressure on family and friends to find things to support that person to make their life engaging. And as soon as a person with dementia is diagnosed by a physician, the physician will tell them and their family, get out there, get engaged, stay busy, stay social. Your brain needs this. Museums have an amazing potential to support these people and their families and to live up to those doctor's instructions. So I wanted to thank you very much for being here today and for considering how you could become dementia friendly. Thank you, Santa. Questions and comments. I have put Santa's email here um, as a direct contact. And I've also put the Dementia Friendly BC email here. If you'd like to email us directly, we would welcome your messages. And Santa, would you like to add anything? Uh, no, I think you did just right. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having us, for being a part of this movement. And uh, uh, we, uh, I, we have about 10 minutes by my watch, so you're welcome to ask any questions that you may have. But if now is not the time, you're welcome to connect with me directly. Um, and I'd be happy to answer any questions, provide any support or resources. And of course, a dementia friendly uh, dementia, sorry, I meant the first link, dementia helpline is a great resource as well uh, for any follow ups. So uh, with that, I will go on and look at my chat and see if anything else has mm -hmm. popped up. There were a couple of questions that came in specifically one I believe from Michael, mm -hmm. and I want to go back to that. And, and and Michael asks, "What are your recommendations if a visitor is in your space and has become stressed out due to disorientation, uh, loss of short-term memory? How is the best way to deescalate?" Um, that's a great question, and it it sounds to me that. It is something that may may or may not have happened to you, or may be a true story and. Um, I would welcome if you feel comfortable to unmute and share more, but um, if not, that's okay too. I know Susan talked about, you know, referring to the communication strategies as a great first start, and I echo that as well. Um, utilizing some of the strategies that we talked about, perhaps even considering um, offering to bring them into a space that's quieter, that's more, uh, less busy, could be a way to just bring them in the moment, just give them some time to reorient to where they're at. Um, consider some of the other strategies that we talked about, especially the connect, don't correct. So trying to meet them at their reality. And in that moment, if you're recognizing that they are experiencing disorientation or a lack of short-term memory, acknowledging that and acknowledging whatever their reality is in that moment, it doesn't mean one is right or wrong it just means that you're meeting them where they are at in their moment and giving them that space to just be and that sometimes might uh might not feel right for you to do um 
sorry, Mike. I, I, no, no problem. No, thank you for your note. You're, you're, you're multitasking, and that's, and that's fantastic. And thank you for joining us while you're on front desk. But um, another, sorry, I lost my chain of thought. But what I was trying to say is that sometimes it might not feel right to say something that is not true. So perhaps meeting in their reality, whatever that would look like. But we often pose this question to even family members or people in the community who ask, you know, of a problem or a situation. And we often say, who is that behavior bothering? Is it bothering the person experiencing the behavior or is it you? And if the answer is that it's bothering you, then that's irrelevant because we have to focus on the person. And if listening to something that meeting them in their reality and reaffirming and and, and connecting and acknowledging where they are helps them find peace and de-stresses the situation, then perhaps that's a strategy to consider. But Susan, I, I welcome your, your thoughts on that too. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's Connecto Correct has always helped me with this, uh, Michael, because um, our initial response when we see somebody in trouble is to actually go to the facts. Well, who are you? Where do you want to be? What needs to be fixed? That's all factual information. And it's all information that needs to be fixed or corrected. So going to connect first is, is usually my go-to. And so that would mean, if possible, wear a name tag so the person can see who you are and what your role is. So there's a connection there. There's a feeling of safety there. If possible, be in a place where a person can see you and see what's going on around them. So you may have to move to have your discussion. And that's in the strategies that Santa just referred to. And then also knowing that it is not your job to immediately jump in and fix the situation. It is your job to connect. So sit down and just hear the story. Allow the story to unfold. Listen, say, wow, I'm here to help. It's my job here to help you. Let the story unfold. You will usually see a brain de-escalate once you allow the story to unfold. It's certainly that way for me. So once that calming time uh, occurs, you can go through those strategies on that list. You'll probably be able to eventually jump in and provide some real hands-on assistance. That's great. Hopefully, Michael, this was helpful. Um, and I know you're multitasking, so you're welcome to put any notes that, that you like as follow-up. Um, and thank you for asking a good question. That was great. Mm -hmm. It actually ties into another question that was posed in the Q&A, which was, do you have any advice on how front of house staff can kindly address unacceptable behavior by visitors with dementia? Examples would be um, repeatedly touching artifacts, uh, which can be cr precious and can um, potentially cause damage, or entering the museum without paying. Um, or and another example provided was using outdated or offensive language. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question as well. Um, and Susan, why don't you, why don't you start? I'm, I'm... <laughs> That's a multi-pronged question. Yes, that is. <laughs> There's so many things that are coming to mind and I, and okay. I want to yeah, okay. have your okay. say because I and I'll right. jump in. Um, so what, what you are actually asking is, how do I deal with unwanted behavior? 
because it doesn't matter what the behavior is, it's unwanted and inappropriate. And we all know that's part of dementia. So first of all, we know now that unwanted behavior is a result of brain damage. It's a disease. So we are not going to fix that unwanted behavior. We are not going to correct it because the brain, the brain damage has occurred, the dementia is there. So any attempt to correct will usually backfire. So then you have to look at, okay, what have I got in my environment to engage this person and to involve them and make this a pleasant experience for them, but to reduce the potential for the in inappropriate behavior. And that is usually tactile things that are fully engaging. So you don't want people to touch certain parts of the exhibit. Of course you don't. So what have you got what, that they can touch? What have you got that they can hold? Can you actually lead them to that part of the exhibit or advertise that part of the exhibit as something special so families and care partners know to go there? Would you consider on special parts of your exhibit to put up a sign saying, this is a very special exhibit, please don't touch. Not necessarily for a person with dementia who has short-term memory, but for the family around that person may say, okay, we're not gonna go there. We're gonna go here because in this part, we can touch things. In this part, we can be interactive. So it's about almost distracting or providing options so that everybody can be involved. It's not about taking a person with dementia through an exhibit and forcing them to behave in a certain way because it's not going to work. So I'd just like some feedback if I'm on the right track with that message. Absolutely. Are. And, you know, it, it makes me prompts me to think about something that we did at a long term care as an example that was shared. And again, different situations. But to that point about touching artifacts or going into spaces that we wouldn't want them to is uh, creating a barrier for that interaction to happen. So, you know, mm -hmm. if artifacts are being touched, like I said, placing signs, sometimes the signs may work for some, may not work for some. What are some right. other, other barriers that you could create? Could you have something that distanced the person to reach to the point of touching the artifact? So again, being creative, there's it's not a one answer fit all sort of a model here, but using mm -hmm. different ways and strategies to first A, recognize that the person is, what is the behavior that you're seeing is a result of either the environment or because of actual changes in the brain. And it's really beyond the person's control. And similarly to your question about not paying, again, I would encourage you to be more creative because the, the person is reminding the person when they come in to say, you haven't paid, you need to pay. Remember, you need to make a fee before you do, before you come into the museum. It's this, so that prompt will perhaps maybe help, maybe not, because that's just something they're not able to understand in their moment because of the physical changes. So finding alternatives that you can do perhaps getting in touch with the family, perhaps coming out with a pass that's multi-usable. So, you know, at your organizational front, bringing this together to the table to see, we recognize this is a problem. It's not because of the person, because of the changes in the brain. And what can we do to enrich their experience, welcome them into safe place, but at the same time, recognize that your museum roles and, um, and are also equally important. Um, 
and starting first is just by that recognition that the person themselves is um, not trying to be disruptive or be troublesome to your space. Um, I hope that answers your question, but we're welcome. I'm just looking at the time and it's 1.30 by my watch. So I do wanna pause us here, but we're happy to connect uh, on this question more or any other questions that you may have. But Lorenda, I'm going to. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just going to take over talking. the screen so we can wrap up now. And I want to thank you so much. I think that's a really great, um, great point of uh, considering what your organization can do to to mitigate those events from occurring, as opposed to trying to um, trying to adjust the behavior after the behavior has occurred. So trying to trying to just in the same way that sometimes you'll find visitors going left when the exhibit starts right. Um, and you have to fit, find a solution to that because that's not how you want them to move through the space. It's about um, addressing the steps that you can take. So that's fantastic. Let me just pull up my screen so that we can wrap up today. Um, I'm just gonna flip through our slides because I have one that uh, talks about questions, but we already did questions. I have my thank you. Thank you so much, Sana and Susan for joining us today and for your detailed information um, and expertise. And thank you so much for our participants for joining us and for your thoughtful questions. Um, we do uh, wanna point out that we have BC Museums Week on the horizon that's coming up in May, May 16th through 20th. So do please check that out. We've got some wonderful sessions. Um, you can view that at museum.bc.ca. Uh, a copy of the recording from the session will be available in your inbox tomorrow. And Sana and Susan, if you have any resources that we can pass along to our participants, I'm sure they would love anything you have. Um, if you can send them my way, I'll include that in that follow-up email as well. Um, also a gentle reminder, if you found this webinar very helpful. Uh, filling out our survey is really great because it lets us know what you enjoyed, what more information you'd like, um, different sessions we can uh, offer to meet your needs, and the link to that survey will be in that follow-up email as well. Um, thank you so much, Sana and Susan, and to our participants as well. It's been absolutely fantastic. I hope you have a great afternoon and a wonderful long weekend, uh, and take care. Bye, thank you.